Hello and welcome to the Sound of History podcast. My name is Nick. My name is Mika. And this is a history podcast where I try and teach music history to my wife. You successfully teach it and then I just have such a bad memory that it it goes right back out again the next I'm day. I'm pretty sure that means I'm unsuccessful. If you can't remember what I've taught you, I'm pretty sure I'm not successfully teaching you. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> it's all right. We're 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 just having fun here. Having a grand old time. Do you remember what we talked about the past couple episodes? I actually do, and I told my friend about it today. Oh, cool. Yeah. What do you want to tell the people about it? Uh, Yeah, the people. Well, you can go back and you can listen to it, and that will be way better than whatever I'm going to try and pull out of my brain. But we talked about Broadway, and that was really cool. We might uh, do a continuation of that Mm -hmm. eventually. Um, But we talked about the origin of it, and we listened to one of the songs that um, is from one of the... um, You Naughty Naughty Men? Is that what you're thinking of? I am thinking of it, but I forgot the word of two people that, like, work together. Gilbert and Sullivan? Partners. No, I was never going to remember (laughs) their actual names. Are you kidding? Partners is the word. See, if I can't even remember the word partners, how do you expect me to remember literally anything? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, you're going two weeks back. You're not even talking about last episode on this one. Well, yeah, because it was cool. I mean, the rest of it was cool, too. But this is something that I I have a little bit more of a vested interest in. Anyway, the partners and the song, you naughty, naughty men, that's what it is, right? Yep. Yeah. How can I see? How can I forget this stuff? Anyway, and then we talked about um, that one really cool lady who like. Do you remember her name? No, (laughs) but she was awesome. And she like. The whole episode. (laughs) Leave me alone. She owned the theater and was, like, a fantastic actress and owned the theater and then the, the company and, like, hired all the other actors, including the including John Wilkes Booth. Yeah. Her name is Laura Keene, by the way. Okay. As in Laura Keene's theater. Right. Yeah. How <laughs> could I forget that based off of Laura Keene's theater? Such a, yeah, she was really good at naming things. They were very original names. Yeah. Well, the first one was Laura Keene's Varieties Theater, yeah. so she helped a little bit there. And then she had <laughs> The Arts, an arts publication. Cool. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're not talking about Broadway today, but if you want us to do a whole season, it's pr- it would probably end up being a mini-season, just because on exclusively Broadway, let us know, and we will consider that whenever we're finally done with (laughs) with all the rest (laughs) of all of american music (laughs) history we've had some positive uh feedback on that some other people want to hear it not just me (laughs) no just you no but that's okay i'm not the only one that likes this stuff well today we're not really going to be talking about a music style in particular because For the past few episodes, we've talked about music from the 1800s. Like, they've, we've dipped into the 1900s and we've talked about a few stuff that happened in the 1900s. A few stuff. A few stuff. Yeah. A few stuffs. (laughs) But they primarily, like, started and had their heydays and did everything important in the 1800s and then just lasted into the 1900s a little bit. So, we're moving out of the 1800s now. But before we do that, there are a couple 
important things we have to just kind of like talk about and explain to you what they are before so we can like move out. The catch all episode of like these things aren't big enough to receive their own episode, but exactly. you need to know this. Yeah, exactly. And they're All not right. music styles. They're just like things that happened around music towards the end of the 1800s. Okay. First thing we're going to talk about is Tin Pan Alley. Oh, I've heard of that. I don't know what it is. Did you hear about it because I mentioned that we're going to be talking about it? No. Last episode? Okay. No, like I actually know that and I have a okay. feeling. I don't know why, but it is it just because it's similar to like names of places here in Nashville that I feel like it has a southern root? But maybe it's not southern. It's, it's New not. York. Okay. But that makes more sense. It's like super famous in music history. So other things have probably been named after it. I know there's like a Stevie Ray Vaughan song named after it. So Okay. But yeah, so you might have heard it from I, somewhere else. I really don't know at all what it is referring okay. to. Well, I'm about to tell you. We'll get on with it. In the mid-1800s, copyright law was basically a joke. Before this, there, was, there wasn't really any like popular commercial music. There was no recorded music, so it was really hard to get any sort of protection for songs you had written. For example, Stephen Foster that we talked about in episode two. He probably generated millions of dollars in sheet music sales, but he saw very little of it because people could just take his music that he wrote, print their own sheet music of that music with their name on it, and then not have to pay him anything for it. Bummer for him. Yeah. But as songwriting started to emerge as a viable profession, this was clearly an issue. Like, you can't have people do that and then try and have people make a living out of songwriting. So something had to be done to stop that from happening, so this brand new industry that was being born wouldn't just die out. It became evident that the writers, publishers, and composers had to work together since no one else was going to help them. At this time, as we've mentioned before, sheet music was the way to sell music. So by music publisher during this time, we mean people who are printing and selling sheet music. It's not like the kind of publishers we think of today where they handle the, like, the lyrics and the music and stuff. Starting around 1850 through 1900, New York became the center for music publishing. There were other publishers scattered throughout the country, but New York was the top port for incoming immigrants, and it was a launching pad for performers traveling through Europe, and it had a solid distribution chain to the highest population city, highest population cities. At some point or another in their career, the top music acts would all come through New York for some purpose. So New York became the hub for music publishing, because at one point or another, everyone would go through there, whether that be, like, the first time coming into the country, whether it be leaving the country to tour Europe, or whether it just be, like, it's New York. Everyone wants to play there. Yeah, I feel like that was a main hub throughout all of these stories. Exactly. I mean, we saw Hamilton. We know New York was popular even back then. <laughs> the way the early music business worked, as seen with Stephen Foster is one of the publishers would hire a composer under contract, meaning that everything that the composer wrote belonged to the publisher. That seems pretty unfair. I mean, it kind of still happens now. Like, Does it? Yeah. Writers work for hire. It's called a work-for-hire contract, meaning like what they write is technically owned by the label or the publishing company. Really? Yeah. Okay. I mean, I don't know. I can't speak that much on like songwriting contracts anymore. Or really label contracts, but that's how like a recording contract works. Like what you 
record is owned by the label. They pay you in advance to record it, and then you get royalties on it and all that fun stuff. But that's okay. not important. At this time, composers were hired under contract, so everything they wrote belonged to the publisher. The writer would get a bit of money per song, maybe some royalties, or maybe a salary. kind of just depended on what the contract was. Then, using market research, the publisher would tell the composer what style of song to write. Then the publisher would test out the songs with audiences and sell the sheet music of the ones that worked. And it was, that was really the start of, like, music as a business. That's kind of cool. Yeah. During the late 1800s, most of the top music publishers had offices on a particular block in New York City. It was on 28th Street between 5th Avenue and Broadway. So That's not as cool a name as Music Row. <laughs> well, we haven't got to the name. Yeah, the block became known as Tin Pan Alley. Oh. Yeah. Really? Yep. We're going to get to why it was called that here in a second. Okay, good, because I'm curious. <laughs> There's some speculation, but most people attribute the name to Monroe Rosenfeld, who was a newspaper writer who coined the phrase to describe the sound of dozens of pianos pounding at once in <laughs> publishers' demo rooms. <laughs> he said that it sounded like people banging on tin pans. Well, he's just a grumpy individual. <laughs> I mean, it probably sounded horrible, honestly. The demo cubicles lined the front and back of the publisher's offices because they were trying to capitalize on the natural light. And before air conditioning, they had to keep their windows open. So the sounds from all of those demo cubicles would just pour into the streets and like That's echo off the cramped awesome. buildings. I would love to have heard that. Like, obviously, it's not going to sound good, but like, there's so much creation happening. Yeah. Like, right there. That'd be so cool. Be. He needs to get his panties <laughs> untwisted. Uh, the demo cubicles would be where musicians perform the songs they had written to try and see if the publishers liked them enough to publish, or the publishers would have, like, already agreed to publish that song, so they would, like, bring in retailers and have the composer play the song for them so they could be like, okay, that's what it sounds like, that's what we're selling kind of thing. There's more that could be said about it, like who the big-name publishers were, what kind of music they produced and all that, but none of it's really that important or interesting. It would just be kind of, like reading off a list of facts it'd be facts that i would forget exactly. literally in like an hour <laughs> and i don't want this podcast to just be like a list of facts like i don't i don't care when someone was born like it doesn't oh, matter no that's the worst part of a history book yeah i so i just i'm more focused on like what the stories are and telling the stories behind stuff so i feel like as long as you just know like the story behind what tin pan alley is then you kind of get it i'm happy that i know that now yeah. i probably was a small portion of the population that didn't know but i feel like a lot of people don't know like okay. they probably know what it like they've heard the name like you but they couldn't be like oh yeah it was a block in new york in the late 1800s where all the publishers lived or yeah worked. not a lot of people would throw <laughs> out the date like that no <laughs> with the birth of other genres and recorded music tin pan alley eventually died out as other places arose to cater to the changing styles of the times Hey, what's up? This is Shane. And this is Rory. And we're WeenCast. If you're into Ween or are a music lover, check out our podcast. We talk about Ween shows, Ween interviews, everything related to the band Ween. Check us out. The other thing we're going to talk about is arguably the most important thing to ever happen in music history. 
what do you think it is? Recording. Yeah. Do you, are you just saying that because I said it? Or no. <laughs> oh, nice. Yeah. I mean, that's the biggest change in yep. music history. The birth of recorded music. That's what we're going to talk about. I love that. We like some people might argue that like radio is more important, but like you can't really have successful radio without, without recorded music. It, yeah. So I'm, I mean, I guess the printing press because that allowed sheet music to be published widely, but still, I feel like recorded music changed the game more than any other technological advancement so far. Yeah, totally. So that's what I'm giving my vote to. People can argue with me all they want. <laughs> that's what I'm voting for. They care, man. <laughs> Find new things to to get mad about <laughs> <laughs> as we've said a lot even in this podcast before you could record music music production focused on sheet music and performance but the ability to record and playback music changed the entire industry so before this if you wanted to hear music it had to be played live whether that was by you by your family by a musician in concert whatever like the only way to hear music is to have it played live in front of you which is kind of crazy to think about. I would be so much more bougie about my music <laughs> if like that was the case. I it's don't know. Like a, I'm just It's a bigger commitment when you have to like play it or go somewhere to hear it played. Yeah. Like can you just imagine being so committed to like this is not a fleshed out thought. <laughs> I really am just That's what picturing podcasts are for is to flesh <laughs> out your thoughts in real time. I'm literally just picturing me being like, man, I really want to listen to like this song by walk the moon. And then they just like pop up <laughs> in my living room. And I'm like, yeah, this is great guys. Cool. Okay. Bye. <laughs> I wouldn't let them leave. <laughs> I don't think that's how it works. <laughs> I know, but like maybe. I don't like, think you'd just be like snap your fingers and <laughs> the popular actress appears in your living room. No, that's just where my brain went, okay? <laughs> <laughs> in 1857, Edward Leon Scott invented the phonautograph. It was a machine that could take sound waves and record them into a glass or onto a glass plate. Cool. Others had come up with similar machines, but as far as I can tell, Scott's was the first one to be officially patented. So is this similar to, like, a record? Like, it's etched in to glass and then you can play it back? Well, although it proved that sound could be recorded, it did not have a way to play that sound back. Oh, okay. It was a start, but essentially useless for the music industry. Got it. So it proved that you could record those waves onto a surface and that, like, sound had distinguishable waves that could be recorded that's pretty cool but at the time they're like all right well cool we have them <laughs> what do we do with these <laughs> they're just here but in 1877 thomas edison invented the phonograph the phonograph was the first time a machine could reproduce the sound that it had recorded it worked by a needle on a rotating wax cylinder that looked kind of like a candle I'm I'm not good at science. I know you are, and I you're gonna probably that. be sad that I didn't like dig deep into the science of how this all works. It's a little hard for me to understand how it all works, but I think it worked by a needle engraving the sound waves into the wax cylinder, and then the needle was passed back over those grooves, which caused the needle to vibrate, and that vibration was sent back out of like this large horn as sound waves. Whoa. That's the super rudimentary understanding of it. Like, that's not at all in depth, but it keeps it simple for everyone, especially me. (laughs) 
When Edison invented the phonograph, he was actually working on a way to play back recorded telegraph messages, and didn't really plan on recording and playing back music. He thought of a machine that could play back tracings of sound and sent his design to a workman to build the machine. That's kind of how it worked back then, from what I understand. Like, Edison or the inventor or whatever would be like, this would probably work, and he would, like, craft this design of something, and then he would send that design to someone who's like, all right, fine, I'll use that design to build this. Why don't we hear anything about the people that actually got it to freaking work? <laughs> well, the people who got it to work, they didn't, like, do any, like, they wouldn't change any of the designs or anything. They would literally just build from, it would be like an architect designs a building and the foreman makes that building happen. Like, it's like that. Like, Edison sketched out, like, this piece goes here, this thing goes here, and then, like, the workman's like, okay. And then they, like, assemble it. Still seems like it would yeah. be I mean, you should kind know. of a big part of it. That's so crazy. I've never thought about inventors not, or at least, like, big name inventors not actually putting <laughs> together their devices. Mm-hmm. That's, wow. That's one of the biggest criticisms with Edison, because there's been a whole hubbub about Edison recently and people hating him. What? <laughs> you haven't heard about this? No. There's a whole lot. But, like, one of the biggest things is that he didn't actually design, st- or, like, he didn't invent stuff. He just hired people who invented stuff, and they worked for him to invent it. But, I don't know, like, there's differing opinions, so I can't state that that's actually what happened, but people think he just kind of, like, stole other inventions. If y'all know about this, then you should educate me in comments or in Twitter or however the heck we're (laughs) communicating at this point. I am very curious about this. People are super opposed to Edison. Tell me why we're canceling Edison. (laughs) I am here for it. He also experimented on animals and stuff. But, I mean, they all did, so... I, I can't say that for sure. They probably all did. Yeah. And then, like, there's also a big thing about him experimenting with radiation, and it essentially, like, killed his assistant. But, and people were like, how dare he, like, expose his assistant to radiation? He and didn't then they, know. Yeah, he didn't know. And it also, like, ate him alive for the rest of his life. Like, he was super upset about it. And he, like, refused to talk about radiation after that. Because he was like, I'm not touching it. It's dangerous. Don't want to deal with it. That but anyway, like a pretty good stand. <laughs> okay. All of that is beside the point. That's a that's a science. rabbit hole on Edison. <laughs> Look at how much more I'm like, ooh, science versus <laughs> sticking history. <laughs> we'll start another pad- podcast where you teach me science. <laughs> that's what I try and do when I come home from work, and you don't really like <laughs> listening to it. <laughs> I don't like science. It's so boring. <laughs> so is history. <laughs> All right, well, anyway. Oh, my goodness. Back to our history <laughs> podcast. Ugh. <laughs> Why did I agree to this? <laughs> so Edison thought of a machine that could play back tracings of sound, and he sent that design to a workman who built the machine. And this and is the hero yes. of recorded music. Thank we get you. To, we get to at least hear his name in this. Oh! This is a quote from Edison about what happened next. I didn't have much faith that it would work, expecting that I might possibly hear a word or so that would give hope for a future for the idea. See, this is the sad part, though, because this is the guy's name, and I don't know how to pronounce it. Just give it your best all-American shot. Krusey. It's K-R-U-E-S-I. Krusey. That's the only way I can think to say it. He was the workman who built the first machine on Edison's design. Krusey, when he had nearly finished it, asked what it was for. I told him I was going to record talking and then have the machine talk back. 
He thought it absurd. <laughs> However, it was finished. The foil was put on. I then shouted, Mary had a little lamb, etc. Oh my god. <laughs> I adjusted the reproducer, and the machine reproduced it perfectly. The first recording <laughs> Is Edison yelling Mary had a little lamb? Yelling. Yeah. <laughs> just because he's not sure if it'll pick it yeah. up. Like, scream this. Just, oh my gosh. It could have been anything. Uh, it's technically not the first recorded sound there's because there's those other people who had recorded glass. it. They just, and they've actually since been able to like play back what those other people have recorded oh, because they figured cool. out a way to do it. But this is the first one on the phone, whatever. I want to know about that. That's amazing. I then shouted, Mary had a little lamb, etc. I adjusted the reproducer <laughs> and the machine reproduced it perfectly. I was never so taken aback in my life. Everybody was astonished. I was always afraid of things that worked the first time. <laughs> what? Long experience proved that there were great drawbacks found generally before they could be got commercial. But here was something there was no doubt of. So basically he's saying, like, in order to get something actually good, you have to work out all the kinks. Right. But, like, this is a thing that is, like, from his first design, it's like, oh, well, that, that was exactly what I wanted to happen. That's so cool. Yeah. Random. A music critic attended an early demonstration of a similar machine and said this about the process and quality. It sounded to my ear like someone singing about half a mile away or talking at the other end of a big hall. But the effect was rather pleasant, save for a peculiar nasal quality wholly due to the mechanism. <laughs> Though there was little of the scratching, which later was a prominent feature of the flat disc, recording for that primitive machine was a comparatively simple matter. I had to keep my mouth about six inches away from the horn and remember not to make my voice too loud if I wanted anything approximating to a clear reproduction. That was all. That was all. That's it. <laughs> when it Simple as pie. When it, <laughs> Simple as pie. <laughs> Simple as pie. Simple as pie. When it was played over to me and I heard my own voice for the first time, one or two friends who I were bet he hated it. Probably. <laughs> One or two friends who were present said that it sounded rather like mine. Others declared that they would never have recognized it. Well, I'll say that sounds just like you. Yep. Like he's already explained this, like what they're listening to, and they're like so zoned out because they don't <laughs> think that it's at all possible. And then they just zone back in for the actual interesting demonstration. They're like, oh, <laughs> whoa, what? Who's talking? That sounds like you. But then others <laughs> said they would never have recognized it. I dare say both opinions were correct. What? <laughs> <laughs> this is cheeky way of being like, well, it's my voice, but it's a crappy mechanism, so it probably sounds nothing like me. Oh, that's amazing. Here is someone playing an early Edison tinfoil recording. Oh, cool. This is what they look like. It's is it like going to be Mary had a little bit? No, it is not Edison. It's just some other recording. It sounds like crap. It sounds like the teacher from Charlie Brown. Yeah, it sounds not good. I mean, keep in mind that's like... That's an old cylinder, too. So it's. Is that supposed to be like a melody? I think so. It's not like. Pr that's not prime condition cylinder. That's a, that's a bad cylinder. Well, thank goodness, but so like. This is an example of what people look like when they're trying to record into it. You record into this giant horn. Oh my god. And then it records onto the cylinder. So and what's then it plays the guy doing where he's like kissing it? 
like kissing the, the piece where like <laughs> the horn connects to the machine. Maybe he's just making sure it works. He's cooling it down. I have no idea. But cooling it down with his breath. <laughs> I don't know. That's how you cool soup down before you eat it. Okay, fair. <laughs> The early phonographs were not long-lasting at all. It was pretty much impossible to remove the cylinder from the machine and keep it intact. It would wear down really fast after being played. So it wasn't like music immediately switched to phonographs. It's not like, here's this invention, and now everyone's recording on phonographs. Things probably sound a lot better when it's like Great Aunt Muriel playing the (laughs) piano. Yes. You couldn't transport or mass-produce phonographs. It was mostly used as like a novelty private entertainment machine. So, like, shops, like a soda parlor, would put, like, a phonograph in the corner and be like, pay a nickel and hear yourself talk. That's so cute. So you would, like, pay and then it would activate and you would, like, record a little, a small, probably wax cylinder and then have it play back to you. Yells Mary had a little (laughs) lamb into the phonograph. Or there were probably a few that were, like, sold privately to, like, rich people to have little phonograph parties or whatever where they'd be like yeah we're gonna have our friends talking to this here trumpet i think that it's like in nice enough bars i don't i don't know but like it's in a pub or something and like guys night out they all just kind of like crowd around it and they're like women's ankles and then like <laughs> that's what like here they're like losing their mind <laughs> giggling about it like the Bachelor parties of the 1880s. (laughs) Buttocks. (laughs) I'm effectively doing the same thing. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah? What? I'm just trying to pick up on where I was. What? You get distracted by ankles? (laughs) But the idea that sound could be recorded and played back revolutionized music forever even if things didn't immediately switch to phonographs. In 1878, Edison made a pretty prophetic statement. The phonograph will undoubtedly be liberally devoted to music. That's cool. Yeah, because, I mean, remember at, when he, he invented this, it, it was a telegraph. Yeah, yeah, it wasn't. He had no idea. Even though he sang into it first, like he had no idea <laughs> it was music. He was like, this thing is going to record and play back telegraphs. Just kind of goes to show about humans you know i don't i don't want to draw conclusions i'm just (laughs) noticing a a connection edison lost interest in the invention and so did the general public what (laughs) edison really didn't work on it or make any improvements to it for years but other inventors would take up the mantle in the 1880s alexander graham bell made the graphophone which improved on the phonograph in the 1890s emile berliner started the transition from cylinders like candles into discs like kind of like the records we know today but like thicker and smaller this was primarily called a gramophone even though there are a few other names it's mostly a gramophone berliners by 1901 it was possible for artists to mass produce the wax disc and record their music onto multiple cylinders at the same time that's cool. That was really when the music industry first started to change. Because for the first time, you could have multiple copies of one song produced. One of the big changes caused by the phonograph is that songs got much, much shorter. Symphonies could last for hours, and it really didn't matter, the sheet music, because like, you could stop playing whenever you wanted. Right. But the wax cylinders and disc lasted two to three minutes. 
Wow. Composers had to fit their songs into that time slot to have any shot of them being recorded. That's so interesting that it's like so, so the three-minute pop song was born. Yeah. It also changed what people expected from songs. A performer, Ada Jones, who was pre- and post-phonographs, said in 1917, On the vaudeville stage, a false note or a slight slip in your pronunciation makes no difference. On the phonograph stage, the slightest error is not admissible. That must have been so expensive, mm-hmm. too. Oh, man, you don't get, like, multiple takes. Yeah. But this meant that a new type of talent was born. You no longer had to be charismatic or terrific live. You no longer had to be a charismatic or a terrific live performer. You had to be technically skilled to pull off a clean take and not waste cylinders on retakes. All right. Yeah. Actually and then the invention of auto-tune was born, and it <laughs> reverted back to who can perform the best. Exactly. There's actually a really good article about like the societal implications of the phonograph and how it changed music forever. It's on the Smithsonian website. Cool. I'll link that in the site or in the the notes on our Podbean website. Is there like a a quick highlight that you have, or is is it been like so long since you read it that you don't really have like a summary for us? A bit of both. It's been a long time since I've read it, but also. The highlight is kind of just what we've talked about okay, <laughs> in this episode. Cool. That's it was one of the sources for the episode. Gotcha. Yeah, but I'll link that. I'll link the Smithsonian article in the show notes. But I will give a warning before you go there. The website is atrocious. There's pop-ups everywhere. The screen jumps around it's as the ads Smithsonian. load. Smithsonian. Yeah, you'd think it'd be good, but apparently what the they heck, you guys. They're too devoted to history. They don't want to be in the modern age oh my gosh that's like literally part of like archives is that you can like have access to it in the yeah. modern age oh my god it's the yeah the website's horrible but the article's well worth it if you can get through it that's like cool. i said don't remember it but it's a great article so you just need to have like your pop-up blocker yes, engaged exactly. and then you can do it eventually the steady stream of improvements to the gramophone graphophone phonograph whatever you want to call it got us to where we are now where recorded music is basically an afterthought no one pays attention anymore to how easy it is for us to record and play things back. Like what we're doing right exactly. now. I mean, I pay a lot of attention because it's not that easy. <laughs> I pay no attention. <laughs> but 150 years ago, it was completely revolutionary and mind-blowing that someone could hear themselves talk, much less hear an entire full performance of a band without them being in the same room as the musicians. Like, before this, no one had any idea what they sounded like to other people. Like, you... Wow. Because I feel like we all sound different on a recording than we do in our own heads. Yeah. So, like, no one back then had any clue what they sounded like. The idea that you could hear your favorite band play and not be in the same room, like, it was crazy. This is going back a little bit to what we had talked about earlier, but I want to throw a little bit of a disclaimer here at the end. Because there's been a lot of internet outrage around Edison in the past few years. People claim that he stole all of his inventions, or he's given credit that he doesn't deserve, or et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I have my own opinions about that, which isn't really a time or place for it. But I'll just say that I spent a lot of time like digging into the phonograph. And as far as I can tell, Edison was the first person to come up with the design to record and playback music. Of course, he borrowed some work from others, but I'm fairly comfortable stating that he didn't steal this invention. Like, it, the phonograph was his. This one is rightfully credited credited to him as far as I can see. Or if he did steal it, the original inventor hasn't been uncovered yet. 
yet. <laughs> yeah, that could change. <laughs> I'm just fueling the internet fire. Yeah, you are. All right, well, I mean, that was Birth of Recorded Music and Tin Pan Alley. It's pretty cool. Yeah. It's pretty cool stuff. It was interesting to learn about because, like, I mean, I had heard about this stuff in school when I took, like, music history classes, but... This is the first time in a long time that I've, like, looked into this topic. And I was like, oh, that, yeah. I'm going to have to go dig through and find that article because that's really oh, cool. On the Wikipedia page Ooh. for the phonograph, there's a little recording. It's a recording from 1906. Ooh. It enticed store customers with the wonders of the invention. I am the Edison phonograph, created by the great wizard of the new world oh to delight God. those who would have that melody or be amused. I can sing you tender songs of love. I can give you merry tales and joyous laughter. The snow on that is about like the snow on our podcast. <laughs> I can call yeah, you to well, join in the rhythmic dance. That's, I mean, that's I later. Well, that was probably like 30 The wizard years of the new age. Yeah, that's what people called him. The wizard of, like, wherever he lived. The wizard of forgot where he's from but <laughs> okay dork because he had like his little castle not castle but his mansion where all of his like in- team of inventors lived and worked so that was like his little wizard castle that's hilarious Whatever. but i actually like while i was researching this too I, I didn't i didn't leave a link so i can't find it but like one of the earliest ever recordings is i think it's called berliner maybe berliner's clock it's just a guy like reciting numbers and then there's a bunch of gibberish that people can't understand and it's just like him counting in time so you can like use those times for clocks. It's weird. That seems so pointless. Yeah, but I mean they're just figuring this whole thing out, so <laughs> I don't know. I'm going to count into it. <laughs> One, two, three. Should I keep going? No. <laughs> Four. All five, right. <laughs> and that six. is our podcast. <laughs> we don't have anything on the correction corner this episode. Seven. Eight, but if I got anything wrong, which nine, I'm sure I did in this episode, ten, or any of the Broadway episodes, let us know on 11, social media. Um, you can find us on Facebook 12, at just <laughs> facebook.com slash sound of history. Thirteen. Or on Twitter at twitter.com slash sound of history with an underscore. And let us know what I got wrong. Fourteen. So we can put stuff in the correction corner. All right, I'm cutting Nico off. No, okay, bye, guys. (laughs) Bye. (laughs)